Good morning, Stapleton Baptist Church. Welcome back to what is hopefully going to be our last Sunday of doing church like this, explicitly online. Now, we'll have this again for the folks who don't feel comfortable staying out next week, but it's going to be on a tape delay, and you'll get it about 1 p.m. Um, roundabout-ish on Sunday because we're going to have the doors open here at 11 o'clock a.m. to be back together as a church. So I hope you're looking forward to coming back together. I know I certainly am. Uh, later this week, we're going to have a video go up on the Facebook and on the church website that shows you all the precautions uh, that we're taking to keep people as safe as we possibly can. But again, if you don't feel like you can be safe coming out right now, we're going to have the service videoed, and it's going to be on Facebook and on the website at 1 p.m.-ish uh, on Sunday. So please plan to go ahead and do that. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 today and talk about why we as Christians should not be anxious this is not a deviation from our normal trek through the book of Revelation. It's just appropriate timing. Uh, so we're going to look at the character of Jesus this morning and see why he himself is our reason that we as Christians should not be anxious in a 2020 that has not been kind to anyone. Uh, so go ahead. This is a great opportunity for you to pull out your copy of God's Word, turn to the passage in question, and we can dive in and do this together. All right? So I'm going to pray, and this is your chance to look up Scripture while you pray with me. Father, thank you so much for today, Lord. I pray that as we look in your word this morning, uh, we would not get uh, distracted and, and dismayed uh, by everything that the, our country is going through right now, Lord. I pray uh, for families who've lost loved ones, for families who've lost, families who've lost houses and businesses and, and, and friendships and, and, and jobs. And Lord, I pray for everyone who's lost something. Uh, Lord, I pray for those that have lost something that know you, Lord, that you would be their peace that you would help them pick back up the pieces and put everything back together. And for, Lord, those that have lost things that don't know you, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help them see that they are lost themselves and that they need to come to you because you are the God of peace. Um, Lord, that without you, we have no peace, we have no joy, and we have no hope. All that is found in you, and I pray that you would give that to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Uh, this morning, and we're going to look at the character of Christ as portrayed to us in Revelation 19 and see reasons that we should not be anxious because of Jesus. So let's go ahead and read the passage together, and then we can start looking at the reasons we should not be anxious. So it says 11 through 17, but that's a typo. It's 11 through 16. So John, who is the author of the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the first reason that we as a church don't need to be anxious is because Jesus is reliable. Jesus is reliable. Look at verse 11. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now I want to focus on two particular aspects of this verse. First is I want us to see uh, that heaven is opened. Um, this is an easy word, this word open, to just kind of gloss over 
and act like it's not there, not see that there's anything especially important about it. So, okay, yeah, that's great. Heaven's open. John's looking. He sees a heavenly vision, so of course heaven's open. But no, there's, there's actually more going on, on there uh, than that. This word opened, uh, if you break it down, if you parse it in Greek, is a perfect passive participle. Uh, so the perfect tense in Greek means an event that occurred in the past, but it carries on into the future with ongoing results. So it's not just that heaven was opened at some point in the past, but it is, you know, it may close again and open it, you know, intermittently. No, it's, this is a permanent state. Um, it is opened and it is going to stay opened. Uh, so when John sees he doesn't see heaven open. He sees it opened permanently with ongoing results. This is a drastic shift in the relationship between heaven and earth. The, the, the barrier is beginning to disintegrate and heaven is permanently in contact uh, with earth. So that's, that's, a, that's a big deal, um, that no longer is heaven's uh, involvement in earthly affairs going to be intermittent, uh, intermittent in, in quotes. Because the truth of the matter is that heaven's involvement in earthly affairs has never actually been intermittent. But there have been periods in the past where God's people went for long periods of time waiting for a word from God or, or an appearance of God. And you see this during the Old Testament, particularly where you'll have hundreds of years sometimes where a prophet won't show up. Um, you've got that one little short page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the ending of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the book of Matthew uh, that spans about 400 years. That There was a long time where people were not hearing from God. People were not seeing God active. But we intellectually know better, right? We know when we look out at the world, is particularly for, for us as Christians, we know that God is always at work. Uh, we know that the very fact that our hearts are beating, that our lungs are, are bringing in oxygen and expelling carbon dioxide and the active respiration, uh, we know the fact that we're able to, to see another sunrise, that we're able to, to lay our head down on our pillow and sleep at night. We, we know the very fact that we exist is proof that God is working. So we're not just saying we haven't seen God work. What we're asking for, what we're waiting on, is, is almost something a little bit more, that we want something different, a breaking through of heaven on earth so that God visibly manifests himself and involves himself in what's going on on earth. That's what we wait for. That's what creation's growing for, and that's exactly what John sees at the beginning of verse 11. And then second, I want us to see that John focuses on this rider on this white horse, that this is Christ, this is different from the, the earlier rider on the white horse that we saw as the seals were being broken. That, that was an imposter. This is actually the risen Christ. He's coming to conquer. Um, so John sees him on a white horse, and it says, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So these two attributes of Jesus that John focuses on are faithfulness and truth. And Robert Mounts, in his commentary, the book of Revelation, from the New International Commentary on the New Testament, he's a, he's a renowned Greek scholar, uh, happens to say that um, Lad, who is another scholar, notes that the two words are practically synonymous in that the Hebrew idea of truth was reliability rather than correspondence to reality as in Greek thought. So we take after the Greeks uh, kind of in, in, in what we immediately think of when we think truth. You know, if, if you tell your child to tell the truth, 
and you ask, you know, have you finished all your food? And they tell you yes, and then you go in there to the kitchen and there's still food on their plate, you're going to tell, you're going to say that wasn't true. And, the, and, and that is true. I can't think of a better word. They did not tell you the truth and that what they told you does not correspond to reality. That is one aspect of the word truth. Uh, but in English, the way we would express this concept of truth, this Hebrew idea of truth, is think about it when you marry someone, that you promise to stay true to them. Uh, what does that mean to stay true to them? How can a person be true? Well, it doesn't mean that I promise that my existence will correspond to reality for the entirety of our marriage. That's almost a, a nonsense statement. How does your existence correspond to reality? That's, that's not the meaning of truth when, when we tell somebody I'm going to remain true to them. When you say you're going to remain true to someone, what you mean is that you're not going to betray them. That when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. That you're going to remain faithful to them. You're not going to leave them for somebody else. You're not going to lie to them. You're, not going, you're, going, to, you're going to maintain faithfulness. That's the Hebrew idea of truth. Uh, as expressed in this verse, that Jesus is faithful and true, that he is dependable. And then the focus upon actions of Jesus are the, the, his judgment and his war-making, that in righteousness he judges and makes war. So when Jesus makes a judgment, we know that it's righteous. When Jesus goes to war, we know they deserved it. And how often is this the case? How often does he judge righteously? How often does he make war righteously? You know, how is it possible that there are sometimes he judges and he doesn't get it right? Or there's sometimes he goes to war that maybe it wasn't warranted. Absolutely not. The one who sat on the white horse was faithful and true. He is reliable. He is dependable. And y'all, there's not very much in the world that is reliable and dependable now. Everybody and everyone is going to let you down. You cannot put your faith in people. You cannot put your faith in a country. You cannot put your faith in an organization. You cannot put your faith in a candidate. You cannot put your faith in a leader unless his name is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who is faithful and true. And no one else deserves your faith the way he does. Because everyone else is going to let you down in some way, shape, or form at one point or another. Stapleton Baptist, do not put your faith in me. Put your faith in Jesus, because as much as I love you, as much as I want the best for this church, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to make a dumb decision, and it's going to be hindsight for all of us later that we should have done something differently. That's never going to happen with Jesus. That Jesus always judges in righteousness. Jesus always goes to war in righteousness that when Jesus decides something he has a very good reason for that even if we don't understand it it's easy for folks to look out right now turn on your tv it doesn't matter what the subject matter is you can always look at the tv and say this this, this world has gone crazy people have absolutely lost their minds uh, things are things are burning people are getting sick we can't go to the hospital we can't what is going on right now let me tell you something. You think this is bad? Go back and read the first 18 chapters of this book. The world is only going to get crazier. And eventually people are going to start lobbying for you to put their faith in them. Don't do it. Put your faith in Jesus, the one who is faithful and true, who judges in righteousness and who makes war in righteousness. Look at what 
uh, God gave us in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments, and He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. The faithfulness of God is a double-edged sword. For those that listen to him and love him and await his coming, he is faithful and true and will keep covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with you. He will not abandon you. He will not betray you. But if you hate him, he is faithful to go to war with you. If you hate him, if you spitefully push him away, he will repay you to your face every time. He will destroy you every time. God is faithful. He is reliable. So Jesus is reliable. So you can trust that when Jesus says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. When Jesus says he's going to be something, he is that. He's not ever going to let you down. So that's the first thing that, that, that helps quell anxiety. Second thing is Jesus is knowledgeable. Jesus is knowledgeable. It, Knowledge is always a good thing when your leader has it. The, the more your leader knows, the better decisions your leader can make. And one reason that you, can be, you, you don't have to be anxious is that your leader, King Jesus, has all the information. He never, there's never something he doesn't know. There's nothing he's going to get caught off guard by. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this verse. First, look at his eyes. It says they're like the flame of fire. Again, remember, Revelation is a symbolic book. There's, a lot, there's some in there that you should take literally. So there are some events that are described symbolically but literally take place. And there are some uh, images that are used that are purely symbolic. It, it, it's a complicated dance of symbolism and literality. Uh, so this is a literal historical event. This is heaven opening and Jesus coming in to conquer the earth. But now look, John says his eyes were like a flame of fire. John does not say his eyes are fire. Um, so what are we getting at? That his eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, <clears throat> well, I'm going to have to pop back and forth between slides uh, to show you this. But look at this. Proverbs 17, verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests the hearts. The fire in Jesus' eyes, what his eyes are like, is they are a purifying judgmental fire. That they are the fire through which everything must pass to be determined whether or not it's good or whether or not it ought to be destroyed. Why is it Jesus' eyes? This is very symbolic language. The idea is that Jesus sees and knows everything. There is nothing that escapes his gaze. There's nothing that has escaped his sight. If there is justice that has gone unrecognized on earth, Jesus sees it. If there is injustice that never got caught on earth, Jesus has seen it. One of my favorite books, I was actually just talking about Mark uh, early this week, is uh, I, I love Sherlock Holmes. And I know that's not a single book. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a ton of short stories, but um, that you can combine them all. I think you can get it for like 10 bucks on Kindle or something like that if you want an e-reader. You can get the complete Sherlock Holmes for like $10 and just read it for forever. Um, but the, the very first book is A Study in Scarlet. And the, they catch the bad guy at the end. You know Sherlock is this, Sherlock Holmes is this famous detective and Watson is his retired military medic sidekick um, who is very intelligent in his own right. He's always, he's always a good guy to have around. 
and they finally catch the bad guy, and the bad guy's got a heart condition and uh, dies before he can actually go to trial. And Watson looks at Sherlock, and he laments that this man would never is never going to to taste real justice, that he's never going to get a fair trial. And Sherlock says, oh no, Watson, even though he died before facing trial, I promise you this man stands before a perfect tribunal now. The books are open, and he will be given a fair trial and fair treatment, and he will get exactly what he deserves. So do not lament that he has not seen justice. He's seen better justice than we could have given him. So Sherlock got it, that perfect justice is meted out at the throne of God, that Jesus has all the information, but Jesus has brought the judgment seat to earth now. It is time for him to enter into judgment with the nations, and nothing escapes his gaze. So his eyes are like a flame of fire. His eyes not only see all, but they purify with his gaze. Second, I want us to see that he has many crowns. On his head were many crowns. His authority is actually unlimited. That he has the knowledge to judge, and he also has the authority uh, to judge. That no one can overstep that. No one can overrule him. And then finally, look, that he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Uh, that there was, in my reading and studying this week, now this may seem a little superstitious. There's a good reason for that. Uh, the Bible doesn't ever say anything about it. There was a superstition in the ancient world that to know the name of a god or a demon or a supernatural creature or something like that, supernatural being, um, to know his name granted one certain powers or immunity or, or authority over him. So I wouldn't read too much into this because that's superstition, but the message would not have been lost on John's readers if that's what he's getting at, is that there's no one who has any authority over Jesus at all. Uh, that he has a name written that no one knows except himself. And if, if there are superstitious people reading this, they'd say, well, then there's nobody who has power over him. And John would have said, absolutely, that he has perfect knowledge for judgment, he has perfect authority for judgment, and he has no, no one who can overrule his authority in judgment. I want you to look at a couple more verses in Proverbs to make this point uh, that Solomon says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Let me caution you as you hear this, um, that, that if you think that God doesn't know something, he does. If you think something has escaped his sight, it has not. Um, if you think that it is, if you can get away with it on earth, you've gotten away with it in heaven, that is not true. Um, so that, that should strike fear into the hearts of anyone who thinks they can avoid God. Ask Jonah how well it works to try and run away from his sight, to try and run away from his presence. Jonah found out that God's always got a big fish that can swallow you up and take you exactly where he wants you to go. Um, it might not be a big fish for you, but why would you want to find out? Uh, so God sees you. God sees what you're doing. God sees what you're up to. Uh, it doesn't escape his gaze. But for those of you who are believers, those of you who love the Lord, those of you who are thankful that he sees all, when you are given injustice, when you are treated unfairly, when when wrong things happen to you and you look around and you say, who's... Who's going to fight for me? Let me tell you, Jesus fights for you. That one day perfect justice will be given out. No one will escape. Uh, that, that Jesus, uh, his eyes are like a purifying flame of fire. And no one has the authority to overrule him when he enters into judgment. Uh, he has all the authority and all the power needed to give you perfect justice. Uh, and the last verse from Proverbs is 521. The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So 
Second reason you don't need to have anxiety is because Jesus will always make sure justice is done, if not on this earth and the life to come. So you don't need to fear uh, that injustice will go unpunished. First, we need to know that Jesus is faithful, that he is always the same, he's reliable. Second, we need to see that Jesus is knowledgeable, that he knows and has the authority to deal with every injustice and every wickedness, um, no matter who or where it is committed. Third, we need to see that Jesus is unassailable. Uh, now, what does the word unassailable mean? Uh, if you imagine an ancient castle, um, you know, maybe in the, the, the King Arthur stories that a castle um, it would be unassailable if no matter how the enemy ran at it, they could not break it. They could not get into it. That it could not be taken over. It couldn't be beaten down. So that's what unassailable means, is that there's no way to break it. There's no way to beat it. Jesus is, in fact, unassailable. Uh, look at verses 13 and 14. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Now, there's an important question that we need to ask about this passage, and that is, whose blood is on Jesus' robe? Now, instinctively, my answer has always been, well, clearly it's his, because the lamb, you know, he's the lamb that was slain. So this is his sacrificial blood on his robe. But after reading and studying, I have changed my mind. I do not think that the blood on his robe is actually his. So let's, let's take a minute to explore our options. Either the blood is his, and it's the blood of his sacrifice for all mankind, um, that he bled for you, either it's that blood, or it's someone else's blood. And if it's someone else's blood, we've got to ask, why is Jesus wearing a robe with someone else's blood on it? Um, now, let me pull from, uh, from, from Mounts again in the New International Commentary on the New Testament. Uh, he makes the point that this figure draws heavily upon the oracle of vengeance in Isaiah 63, 1-6. In answer to the prophet's inquiry, now listen to this, why are your garments red? like those of one treading the winepress. God replied, I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments. So if you read verse 15, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but if you read verse 15, um, actually, you know what? I, I will put them, uh, I, well, no, I'm not going to put it on there yet. It's going to be our next, our next point. But when we see verse 15 on the screen, we're told that Jesus tramples the winepress winepress of the wrath of God himself. So you've got this callback to Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, where God is saying, I am treading the winepress, and, and, and it's their blood spattering my garments. That This is a war statement that you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus has not gone to war yet. If this is not his blood, he hasn't slain anybody yet. Well, remember, there's a lot of symbolism going on in this book that you, you're, you're being too literal uh, right now. Uh, that this vision that John is seeing, you're already seeing the, the guarantee of Jesus' victory. So this is someone else's blood. This is not Jesus' blood. My, another thought that crossed my mind, if this is Jesus' blood of sacrifice, then why do you not see his blood on his followers? Because are we not washed in the blood? Is it not the blood of Jesus that, that purifies us, that washes us clean? If you go back to the Old Testament, 
on the Day of Atonement, when they slaughtered the sacrificial lamb that was for the purification of the temple, what did the priest do? The priest took a bowl of the lamb's blood, went and flicked it all over the, the things that were in the tabernacle to purify it. If blood purified the people on the horses behind Jesus, then why do we see no blood on their linen, white and clean? Why do we not see the sacrificial blood of Jesus on them? But it's not there. They're not spattered in blood. It's only the rider at the front. So if this is somebody else's blood, we have some other interesting questions to raise. General military thought is that you take your commander and you put him in the back of the army. Why? Why do you do that? Because your general, your, your, your commanding officer is the brains of the outfit, right? He's the one giving all the troops their orders so that they know where to go, they know how to attack, they know when to retreat, they know how to make all their maneuvers. And if you take the commanding officer out, then the troops are not going to know what to do. So it's more important to keep them in the back so that they can make the best decision for everybody and the troops go out front and they defend him. But that's not what you see here, is it? It's flipped around the other way. The general is actually in front. The commanding officer is actually out in front. And the army is behind him. So the one who goes out in front is the one who's doing all the fighting. And the ones in back are the ones being protected. Now that should tell you something. That the one individual in front is, is the, the offense. He's the one going out to fight. He's got more fight in him than the entire army of heaven behind him. He is going to war all by himself. The general will be the one doing all of the fighting. Now that should say something about Jesus' strength, church. Who's going to defend us? Jesus is. Who fights for us? Jesus does. Who will speak up for us? Jesus will. Who will ensure that we get a fair shake? Jesus will. We're helpless. No, we're not. No, we're not. We've got access to the greatest power in the cosmos, and it's its king, and we have access to the cosmos as king. Jesus. We've been redeemed by him. He fights for us. He will fight for us, both now and in the future. So I don't need to be anxious because I know that my God, who loved me enough to send his son to die for me, I know that that sacrificial lamb that died for me is alive. He lives and will live forevermore. And he will ride out in front of me on a white horse one day. And he will fight the battle that I've never been able to win. He will overcome this world on, on, on our behalf. And he will give us the victory. Jesus is unassailable. Look at Romans chapter 8. One of the most encouraging chapters in all the Bible. Starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's he who condemns? It's Christ who died, and furthermore is also riven, risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is absolutely nothing in the universe that can separate you from the love of God that belongs to you in Christ Jesus. 
If it kills you in this life, it cannot kill you in heaven. If it defeats you here, it cannot defeat you there. And you have a guarantee that your God, your risen Christ, is going to take over this world and give you the victory even if you die in this world now. Christ will give you a new life in a new world and you will be victorious. Justice will be done. Justice will always be done. I just realized I have a button that is not buttoned. This is what happens when you, you've got a camera in front of you and you're self-conscious. Sorry for the distraction. <laughs> you don't have anything to fear. That Jesus is going to win and that should give you peace of mind. So Jesus is faithful. Jesus is knowledgeable. Jesus is unassailable. And finally, Jesus is... Oh no, I didn't even change my last slide. The last slide is supposed to say Jesus is unbeatable. <laughs> the last side's supposed to say Jesus is unbeatable. So unassailable is kind of the idea that no one can get past him. Unbeatable is the idea that no one can overcome him. So no one can take you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus your Lord. Romans 8 says no one can get past Jesus to take that away from you. And then finally, no one can overcome Jesus uh, in order to defeat you. So... Uh, I want to go ahead and, and dive into these last couple of verses here. Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. See, there's the winepress that we were talking about. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now y'all, I have seen some crazy art about this verse right here, that they always paint Jesus or draw Jesus with an actual sword uh, coming out of his mouth. That is not what John has got going on right here. Well, Josh, that's what John said. Do you doubt the Bible? No, I don't doubt the Bible. I just remember that this is apocalyptic, and therefore there's a lot of symbolism going on here, even when we're discussing the literal event of Jesus riding out on his horse to conquer earth. This does not mean that he actually literally has a sword coming out of his mouth. Let me ask you this question. What comes out of your mouth? What's coming out of my mouth right now? Words. Speech. Finish the sentence. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? Jesus' words are more powerful than any sword. That's Jesus' weaponry. His, his words. He doesn't need guns, he doesn't need swords, he doesn't need axes, he doesn't need tanks, he doesn't need tanks. All he has to do is speak. And his word is authoritative and powerful. He treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it says he's gonna strike the nations with a with a he's gonna rule the nations with a rod of iron after striking them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. This passage is clearly not to be taken literally, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken seriously. Sword is symbolic of his words. The rod is a symbol of the strength of his rule. We've already discussed the wine press, that it's the blood of Jesus' enemies as he slays them in this final assault on a world that has turned its back on God. Now this name, on the other hand, even though we've seen that Jesus also has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Jesus has another name that everyone is allowed to know. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. But y'all, today there's a lot about God that we don't know. There's a lot about God that we're never going to know. That we know more because of Christ than, than we would have known otherwise. And we'll know more about God when we see Christ even than we do now. So much so that it would almost seem to be infinitely more than we do now. But there's only one creature. Well, I should not. That's That would have been blasphemy if I finished that sentence. There's only one being that is, in fact, infinite. And it's not us. That's God. And it's impossible to know the infinite. Because for God to be infinite, that, that means that there's always something else to know. There's always going to be something about God that we don't know. But there's some things about him that we can. And what we can know about him, Jesus has revealed to us, and we see it in this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That there is not a king that can beat up Jesus and take that title. There's not a Lord that can beat up Jesus and take that title. And he's wearing it out there for everybody to see. That he shows up with his victory written on him. Not as a threat, not as a dare, but as a promise. He claims what is his. He is king, he has come home from the long journey, and now he has come to see what his people have done. If they have rejected him, go back and check your parables of Jesus. Those who said, we don't want this man to rule over us, it did not end well for them. I want to go to Psalm 2 and show you the unbeatableness of Jesus. Because I do believe that this set of verses, 15 and 16, is a callback to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That There are always going to be people who don't want to be ruled by King Jesus. There are always going to be people who don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with his rulership. They don't want anything to do with his morality. They don't want anything to do with his standards of righteousness. And so they ally themselves together and say, if we just work together, we can shatter this God delusion in this world. And we can, we can lead it into prosperity because our wisdom is enough. So let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Well, here's God's response. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Who is this king? I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Which nations? All of them. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. What is the result of the nation that says, I don't want to be ruled by Jesus? You are dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. You are smashed with an iron rod. Now there is mercy in Christ. I plead with you. I urge you. Come to Jesus today. He is forgiving. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is righteous. But it's not just his mercy that you need to be aware of. It is his righteousness and holiness and his reliability in destroying those who oppose him. Come to Jesus today as a friend so that he does not come to you as your enemy. I don't want you dashed in pieces by the rod. I want you led by still waters with the staff. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him.
And that's what I encourage you to do today. Put your trust in Jesus. Don't wait for that. When Jesus is riding out on the white horse, it's too late for you to fall in front of him and say, my Lord and my God. Do that today. Give your life to Christ today. Find your peace and your stability in Jesus today. Don't walk around in anxiety wondering who's going to save me, who's going to save me. Jesus already has. Even if you lose everything on this earth, I promise you, Jesus is, is more than anything any of us have here. I love you. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to live in fear. I want you to live in peace because you know King Jesus. He's reliable. He's knowledgeable. He's unassailable. He's unbeatable. And he's there for you. And he can be yours. And you can be his. Just come to him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am guilty of everything that you could accuse me of. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. And I want his blood to be enough for me. Forgive me for my sins on the basis of what he did on the cross. I believe that he didn't stay dead. I believe that he rose. And I want his resurrection to be my resurrection. And I want to belong to you for the rest of my days and serve you throughout. And Jesus will save you right now. If you do that, if you prayed anything quite like that, reach out to me on Facebook. Give me a call. Shoot me a text. If you've got my number, send me an email. You can find that at stapletonbaptist.org, which I'll point you to in just a minute. But I'd love to be able to walk with you. Um, through the next few steps uh, of your, your walk with Christ there as a brand new Christian. Uh, I'm going to make a couple of announcements and then we will be done. First, if you are watching this on our website and you're a Facebook user and you're not there yet, you don't like our page yet, go check out facebook.com backslash Stapleton Baptist GA. It's the best place for breaking news. As soon as it happens, it goes straight to Facebook. Um, we also do some neat things over there occasionally called 60-second devotionals. Um, where we take a Bible verse and we throw it up there and say, stop everything you're doing for 60 seconds, meditate on this verse, and then post one comment uh, in the comment section so we can all think about God's Word together. We do fun things like that. And when I post videos, they go up there first. So check out Facebook if you're a Facebook user and you haven't liked their page yet. If you're watching this on Facebook, I encourage you to go on over to our church website, stapletonbaptist.org. That's where you can find our sermon archive. And you can also find handouts that go along with our sermons. Like this one's going to have one. Uh, as well. Um, so check out stapletonbaptist.org. That's where you can sign up for our email list. You can do online giving if that's something you want to do. Uh, you can find our sermon archive. You can find all kinds of information there that there's not really a good way to put on Facebook. So check out stapletonbaptist.org. Uh, and I do want to make one more announcement about stapletonbaptist.org. If there were some of you who just kept looking on the website uh, Wednesday for the Wednesday Bible study, um, there was a technical difficulty with that that I had not yet gotten resolved. I don't know why, but I couldn't get it posted to the website. So the website is just going to have a link that shoots you straight over to Facebook. There's nothing I can do about that until I can manage to get it fixed. I don't know what went wrong. Um, for all I know, this one's going to do the same thing. Uh, but if you click the, the front rotator on the website, it'll just take you to the video on Facebook. You do not have to be a Facebook user to view a video on Facebook. So don't let that keep you um, from following uh, following along with our messages. So um, I love you guys. Uh, I can't wait to see you all back in here next Sunday. So y'all stay safe, and we will see you on June 14th at 11 a.m. No Sunday school, no evening service, but June 14th at 11 a.m. right here in the sanctuary where I will be super excited not to be the only one here anymore. I love you guys, and y'all take care.